Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Zara Kasamali Escobar, and I am an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at the University of Washington Medicine Valley Medical Center and a clinical assistant professor at the University of Washington School of Pharmacy. Today, we are going to discuss one of the areas and patients where I feel antimicrobial stewardship is most difficult, immunocompromised patients. First, I want to introduce our guests. I have Dr. Catherine Liu, who is an infectious diseases physician and a professor at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and an associate professor at the University of Washington. She is the director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship and Outpatient Parenteral Antimicrobial Therapy Programs, as well as an associate director of infection prevention at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. Her clinical and research interests include infections in immunocompromised hosts, focusing on those with cancer and hematopoietic stem cell transplant recipients, implementation and evaluation of strategies to optimize antimicrobial use and prevention of healthcare-associated infections. Prior to Seattle, Dr. Liu was the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and the Infectious Diseases Management Program at UCSF. Many of you will also recognize Dr. Liu for her work and authorship on the MRSA treatment guidelines and vancomycin therapeutic drug monitoring guidelines. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much, uh, Zara. I just wanted to thank you for inviting me to be here today and really delighted to join you and Justine um, on this episode of Breakpoints. And I would like to introduce our second guest, who is Dr. Justine Ross. She is an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist specialist at the City of Hope National Medical Center in Southern California and the co-chair of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program. Her work includes enhancing electronic medical record workflows to incorporate pharmacists in antimicrobial stewardship practices, updating policies and procedures to ensure appropriate anti-infective use, and involvement in pharmacy, therapeutics, and infection control committees. Prior to the City of Hope, Justine completed a PGY2 in infectious diseases at UC San Diego Health. Justine's research interests include antimicrobial stewardship practices in the solid tumor and hematologic malignancy patient populations and studying impact and outcomes of anti-infective prophylaxis in immunocompromised populations. Welcome, Justine. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Catherine and Justine, and thank you for joining us on Breakpoints. As I mentioned, today we're going to be discussing antimicrobial stewardship in in immunocompromised patient populations. This is really tricky, as you both know. Oftentimes, immunocompromised patients like cancer patients, recipients of solid organ transplants, and stem cell transplants are excluded from clinical studies, but they also receive a ton of antimicrobials. So today's discussion is going to get into how to strike the balance of therapy optimization and the troubles with excess antimicrobial exposure. The way I see stewardship in these patients is really biphasic. We have the pre-infection or prophylaxis aspect of antibiotic exposure and optimization, and then we have the infection phase of antibiotic exposure. So there's many questions associated with both, and let's get right into it. So Justine, my uh, my understanding of antibiotic prophylaxis, usually a fluoroquinolone, is that we use it to prevent infection in in patients whose ablative chemotherapy is going to put them in a place of prolonged neutropenia. Is is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, Patients with hematologic malignancies undergoing chemotherapy or conditioning regimen 
for stem cell transplant are at high risk for infection because of severity and duration of neutropenia, as well as mucositis associated with these chemotherapies. There are, actually have been two randomized controlled trials um, by Bukhanev and colleagues and Cullen and colleagues um, published in the New England Journal in 2005, which did show a reduced incidence of fever and bacteremia despite the lack of mortality benefit. Um, however, uh, uh, two, med uh, two studies from Grafter um, and colleagues also showed that antibiotic prophylaxis was associated with a mortality ba benefit based on pulling of data along with the reduction of fever and bacteremia. So based on those results, many clinicians continue to adopt universal prophylaxis to prevent infection in high-risk patients. Uh, more recently, I believe in 2019, there was a meta-analysis by Mikulska and colleagues, uh, which showed that there was no mortality benefit from antibacterial prophylaxis, but was also shown to reduce the, uh, the incidence of fever and bacteremia. So I think it's very challenging to determine whether institutions should deploy a universal strategy or risk stratified approach um, in this scenario because there are different um, approaches and inconsistencies with the literature, um, as well as the guidelines. Uh, for example, in the United States, we use a more risk stratified approach um, and perhaps using fluoroquinolone prophylaxis in patients who, with an ANC of less than 100 and, um, and are anticipated to be neutropenic for greater than seven days, while our European colleagues don't recommend the use of fluoroquinolone prophylaxis because of the toxicities in the emerging resistance in gram-negative organisms. Uh, but I did want to mention that recently, there has been some randomized controlled trial data um, published in Lancet Oncology by Drayson and colleagues, which did perform a double-blind placebo-controlled phase three trial of levofloxacin prophylaxis in patients with newly diagnosed myeloma, also known as the TEAM trial. And that study did show that the addition of prophylactic levofloxacin in patients with newly diagnosed myeloma um, in the first 12 weeks of therapy significantly reduced uh, febrile episodes and deaths compared to placebo without increasing healthcare-associated infections. And then another randomized control study that was performed in the pediatric population with, uh, in patients with leukemia and undergoing stem cell transplant also found a benefit of levofloxacin prophylaxis in reducing bacteremia in the leukemia group, but really no difference in the transplant group. So there is an attractive argument to use fluoroquinolone prophylaxis to perhaps reduce the number of febrile episodes and reduce the risk of bacteremia over a period of time. And I think this would be useful in situations where patients may have severe mucositis or receiving total body irradiation during chemotherapy, or perhaps in the setting of autologous transplant um, in the outpatient setting perhaps, where you may wanna prevent a readmission due to febrile neutropenia or bacteremia. Um, however, I don't, in all of these cases, I think the toxicities associated with the use of fluoroquinolones and the impact of the gut microbiome with continued use and the development of antimicrobial resistance can make fluoroquinolone prophylaxis less useful over time. Um, interestingly, at the City of Hope, we did employ 
universal uh, fluoroquinolone prophylaxis in 2004, and we saw an increase in our resistance rates from 40% to 60%. And then the following year, we restricted fluoroquinolone use and went away with universal prophylaxis. And um, we found that our resistance rates and blood isolates actually went back to baseline at 40%. Um, so I think you know, initially you might see this benefit of fluoroquinolones, but over time you will start to notice uh, perhaps in, in your local institution, the increased rate of resistance and increased fluoroquinolone resistance where fluoroquinolone use may not be as uh, useful as it was in the past. Thanks for citing all those studies. Do you think that there is a, a period of time where it could be beneficial in the same patient? So like after the first cycle of chemotherapy versus after second or third cycle, um, is, there, is there any difference in, in that regard? Yeah, I think there needs to be an individualized approach in terms of where that benefit really lies. And it's very difficult in this population, as Catherine can probably, um, you know, agree with that it depends on the type, sometimes the type of chemotherapy and how T cell depleting it is and how and how severe that mucositis is. And also the, the setting in where um, these chemotherapies are given, are they given in the outpatient center? Are they given in the inpatient center? And perhaps one can make an argument that in the inpatient setting where you're closely monitoring for signs and symptoms of infection, uh, perhaps fluoroquinolone prophylaxis um, may be deferred in that setting, um, but you know it really depends on how many therapies and how many chemotherapies they've received in the past uh, to determine their risk. But over time, if you've had a prolonged exposure to fluoroquinolones, uh, eventually resistance will occur. Got it. And and you know you you mentioned the severe mucositis, and I think that's because generally prophylaxis is to protect patients from organisms that originate from their own bodies. So Catherine, you know, what do you think about this idea of the problem with baseline resistance or even acquired resistance while people are on fluoroquinolone prophylaxis? And how is that, or is that changing the um, approach towards using prophylaxis in these patients? I really appreciate Justine's very thorough summary of all of the literature um, that sort of um, has led us to uh, using fluoroquinolone prophylaxis, um, you know, probably maybe not universally in all centers in the United States, but I think in the majority of cancer centers in the U.S., it is, you know, still remains a very, very common approach. Um, Zora, I think you do raise a very, you know, important concern regarding the role of fluoroquinolones in a era of growing antibiotic resistance. Um, those two studies that Justine mentioned were published over 15 years ago now, and I think a lot has changed with respect to um, antibiotic resistance, particularly with fluoroquinolones uh, over that the past 15 years. And so I think it's important for us to really carefully weigh the risks and benefits of fluoroquinolone use um, as growing resistance will threaten our ability to prevent and treat infection among our cancer patients. Um, I just wanted to mention a recent study that was published by Mike Sotland's group in Cornell and CID um, just over the past month um, in which uh, they, they basically screen patients for uh, fluoroquinolone resistant enterobacterales um, by collecting stool samples on admission uh, for transplant um, and also then collected it weekly thereafter until count recovery. And what they found was that nearly um, a third of 
uh, stem cell transplant recipients who were colonized with uh, these fluoroquinolone-resistant Enterobacterales, or FQRE. Um, these individuals uh, developed a gram-negative bloodstream infection while receiving levofloxacin and prophylaxis, compared to only 1% of those who were not colonized with FQRE. And then when they sequenced the bloodstream isolates of those who were colonized, um, the, the vast majority were um, genetically identical to the colonizing strain. And so I think what you can see here from this study is that fluoroquinolone prophylaxis was found to be highly effective among those who are not colonized with a um, fluoroquinolone resistant strain, but then among those who were colonized with a fluoroquinolone resistant organism, it was not very effective with a substantial portion of these patients um, essentially going on to develop a bloodstream infection. And so I think this raises the question of whether this standard approach of universal fluoroquinolone prophylaxis may not be appropriate or beneficial for all patients, that we, we might need to consider a more tailored approach um, where you know, perhaps screening uh, patients for colonization might predict those who are most, most likely to benefit, and that for those who are colonized with a resistance strain, um, more likely an alternative strategy might be indicated. Um, and then you know, I think that um, there are obviously a lot of other concerns uh, beyond resistance that I think Justine already alluded to, um, including uh, disruption of the gut microbiota. There's a number of studies that now demonstrate you know, this, this relationship between uh, micro micro microbiota diversity and transplant-related complications such as graft-versus-host disease and mortality. And I think we're all also well aware of all the, the long-term toxicities associated with uh, fluoroquinolone use. So lots of reasons why I think it's time for us to really rethink the role of fluoroquinolones um, in prophylaxis, recognizing that they likely have some role for some patients, but perhaps not for, for everyone. That's really interesting. Um, do you think that they're going to, has it been discussed, the idea of just switching the antibiotic that we use for prophylaxis, or is the idea you think more the abandoning of antibiotic prophylaxis because fluoroquinolones may not be effective for a lot of patients? Yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I, I think it's really one that has generated quite a bit of controversy, I think um, within uh, sort of the immunocompromised host ID world. And I, I think the practice has been um, different in, in different countries, I think, um, Justine mentioned that the European, many European countries don't use fluoroquinolone prophylaxis routinely. I think in large part that this is probably driven by the fact that they have very high rates of fluoroquinolone resistance, especially in parts of Europe and Southern European countries in particular. Um, additionally, places like Australia also do not recommend a fluoroquinolone prophylaxis um, universally. And um, at the Peter McCallum Cancer Center in Melbourne, Australia, for example, um, Monica Slavin's group has really focused um, quite a bit of their efforts um, instead on early sepsis detection and management rather than use of fluoroquinolone prophylaxis. And um, some of the work that they've done there has shown that implementing a robust uh, sepsis pathway where they really focus on early identification of patients and timely initiation of antibiotics has um, led to reduction in mortality as well as ICU admissions among uh, their, you know, their high-risk uh, patients with hemolignancies and transplant patients. And, um, and I think as, as Justine raised, it, it does um, bring up this important question of whether or not there's really value of continuing fluoroquinolone prophylaxis in the hospitalized patient when somebody's being very closely monitored, particularly as many hospitals have developed a um, 
sepsis pathway. Um, there's, you know, this is an important quality metric, I think in most hospitals in the US, um, very different than what I think was available 15 years ago when those original trials were published. And so in this sort of new era where there's a lot of focus on sepsis management, timely initiation of antibiotics, is there really value in continuing this in the inpatient setting? Um, I, I do think in the outpatient setting, there may still be a role for prophylaxis, particularly for those patients who maybe live far away, they don't have easy or uh, quick access to a hospital. So, so in that, that sort of environment, um, that, that may be beneficial, but um, in the hospital setting, I think the utility may be more limited. That's really um, interesting. Oh yeah, go ahead. And I guess just one other sort of comment about, um, uh, you know, sort of some of the, we've started to make some shifts in our, um, some baby steps away from universal fluoroquinolone prophylaxis at our center, um, primarily focused just on the group of patients who have microbiologically documented infection. So I think in the past, if somebody had E. coli bacteremia, for example, and they were still neutropenic, um, they would get you know, ceftriaxone plus levofloxacin, or in the case of a patient with um, you know, ESBL E. coli, they would get ertapenem and levofloxacin for that um, additional anti-pseudomonal coverage that levofloxacin provides um, while they're in-house. And um, you know, I, I think that practice is one that we've started to shift away from is that if a patient is in the hospital, they're getting actively treated with another antibiotic for a microbiologically documented infection, we will focus our treatment on that particular infection and not resume um, fluoroquinolone prophylaxis. So that is sort of our initial uh, step away from, you know, continuing this in, you know, in the inpatient setting. But I, but I think ultimately we're going to need to do some um, I think it's time for us to, to probably repeat uh, some of these randomized trials in this new era to really identify which populations are most likely to benefit from fluoroquinolone prophylaxis. Interesting. Justine, have you, um, at your institution, have you changed the way you approach fluoroquinolone prophylaxis then based on more recent data? Uh, actually, so what I mentioned earlier is uh, we did have a problem employing uh, universal prophylaxis in the early 2000s, and um, it took about a year or so for uh, our institution to, to not use universal prophylaxis anymore uh, before we were, and, and what really drove that was not necessarily data, but really our internal data showing the fluoroquinolone-resistant blood um, isolates that we started to see um, by doing prophylaxis in that way. So I think using your local susceptibility data to, to show that this is the impact that fluoroquinolones may have on these patients um, will help with changing that culture over time, as well as increased education and, and ensuring that, you know, everyone in um, the, in infectious diseases and pharmacy and hematology or medical oncology, which whichever um, department you're working with um, is, it continues to be aware of those toxicities and that the benefit of fluoroquinolones are limited. But um, right now we don't uh, use fluoroquinolone prophylaxis, especially in the inpatient setting in, in, our, in our transplant um, patients. Um, I believe we recently looked into it and I believe we, used fluoroquinolone prophylaxis in six out of 600 allogeneic transplants that we've done. 
um, over the last couple of years. And um, it really is a joint effort with infectious diseases and the, the other departments that we work with to maintain that and continued education. And, and I think we're highlighting some of the impact on the microbiome, um, as Catherine had mentioned earlier, um, and its effects on um, exacerbating acute graft-versus-host disease, specifically gut graft-versus-host disease, which is an independent risk factor for mortality in these patients. So I think highlighting the, some of those, um, those risks uh, really helps with that but we are still using fluoroquinolone prophylaxis in the outpatient setting. Our outpatient autologous transplant patients, patients who live far from home and are receiving uh, chemotherapy with um, a high risk of mucositis and whatnot. And I think that's where, that's kind of where we're at at our institution right now. Great. Um, so I, I do wanna uh, give us the option to talk a little bit about prophylaxis and solid organ transplant. Um, and if, if there's any controversies here, it doesn't seem to be as common. Seems like the stem cell transplants are the ones that really are getting the antibacterial prophylaxis, but I did want to bring that up and see if you had any comments for that specific group, either of you. So I am not aware of any major controversies in antibacterial prophylaxis in solid organ transplant recipients where it is primarily being used in the context of surgical antimicrobial prophylaxis. Sometimes questions may arise regarding the appropriate prophylaxis, for example, for a patient who has a history of an MDRO or who is known to be colonized with an MDRO. I think the issue that sometimes comes up is for kidney transplant recipients where they have frequent um, urinary tract infections or, or really just colonization or um, bacteria and management of that, I think, is an area where there's been um, some challenges. Um, so not so much a question related to prophylaxis, but really management of UTI and uh, recurrent bacteriuria in those patients. Um, where there have been some studies that um, suggest that there, there, not, there isn't necessarily a, a, a benefit of sort of chronic or um, suppressive antibiotic therapy in that, in that setting. So you're saying asymptomatic bacteria is a stewardship issue? I, I think asymptomatic bacteria in all populations is a, is a stewardship um, issue. And, and I think, um, you know, the, the transplant and the and the hemolignancy population does pose some unique challenges. You know, for our neutropenic patients, you know, interpretation of a urinalysis um, is you know you basically uh, you can't interpret a negative UA in that setting because they have no white cells. Um, and so, and and then sort of teasing out symptoms can also be sometimes challenging in this population as well. Um, uh, so it it certainly does represent an opportunity, I think, for sure. So I, I love that. That's a perfect segue to pivoting then into stewardship once a patient becomes infected or is admitted um, with a suspicion of infection. Um, and I think, you know, on the one hand, you have patients presenting with febrile neutropenia, which I think is in its, its own thing in and of itself. But I am also really interested in talking about other infections, you know, clearly they are people who go out and get exposed to other things like pneumonia, or they could get an intra-abdominal infection or a urinary tract infection. So um, when I see these patients in my community hospital setting, if they have a history of um, 
some kind of immunocompromising condition, be it a solid organ transplant, not as we don't usually see these history of stem cell transplant patients, but we could, um, you know, we tend to treat them more broadly with antimicrobials and for longer durations. So do you have any thoughts on this? Um, is this how you are approaching these patients? I know, Catherine, you made that really nice point of you. It's hard. How do you interpret a UA and someone who's neutropenic? Um, and so you can't really rely on the usual signs that we're connecting to, to make diagnoses. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's tricky. I, I think the, you know, I think in general for, um, solid organ transplant patients and autologous stem cell transplant patients, I typically think about transplant-related infectious complications uh, diminishing after probably about six to 12 months or so. And then for allotransplants, it's a bit longer, maybe about 12 to 24 months um, post-transplant. But you know, I think the answer is that it does really depend on the individual patient and understanding some of the nuances about the types of infectious and transplant-related complications they may have had to date. Um, so for some patients, they may have ongoing issues with recurrent infections that require, uh, you know, repeated antibiotic treatment and hospitalizations that may prompt us to need to consider broader empiric choices for antibiotic coverage of, you know, what may seem to be a typical community-acquired infection. And then for those patients who are on um, still getting some immunosuppressive therapy, it's also important to consider um, whether or not they have required augmentation of their immunosuppression for any reason. So um, either due to graft-versus-host disease in our allotransplant patients or for our solid organ transplant patients, graft rejection, because I, th I, I think of, you know, sort of that the risk of infection increases when these patients get even more heavily immunosuppressed because they have something going on with their underlying graft. Um, and, and that might increase, influence their risk of um, additional um, infections. And, and then I think the other thing to consider for the SOT patients is that um, you'll have to think about their allograft and, and surgical complications they might have experienced in the past. Um, typically these, these type of complications occur early on post-transplant, but some patients may actually have some chronic issues um, that need to be taken into account when considering empiric therapy, you know, for example, if they have sort of recurrent anastomotic leaks, um, so forth, that might influence your decision about what you use for, you know, your intra-abdominal infection coverage. So maybe more than just your typical community-acquired infection, um, just thinking about what their prior history entailed, I think is important to consider. So when you, so Justine, for example, you write a lot of policies for your institution. And so when you're writing like your community-acquired pneumonia guideline, what is your upfront empiric therapy for your patients coming in and how do you make those decisions? So, uh, you know, our community acquired pneumonia is aspergillus in our population. So <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm not, I'm sort of kidding, but um, I, it really, that really is our most common um, pneumonia at uh, working at a cancer center, particularly. Um, but to your, to, to your question, uh, in solid tumor patients, I think it really depends on their disease status, their, their chemotherapy history, uh, where the source is, and, um, and has a source been identified, as Catherine alluded to, it's a little bit, it's more difficult in this population to determine uh, sometimes where the infection may be. 
And also is if um, controlling the infection is achievable, especially in our in our solid tumor patients. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, if in, in a specific scenario and if they're in remission, then, you know, maybe you can consider their um, infection to be a community acquired infection. Granted, all of those things are, are there. So it's a very, it, it's very dependent on their history and, and, and each patient every time. And I think there's a huge variability. I think a lot of people will just say they have cancer, therefore we'll treat it in this way, but really cancer and the severity of the cancer and where that cancer is um, really needs to be taken into consideration uh, before considering that to treat this patient as if it were a community acquired infection. Um, it is more difficult in patients with hematologic malignancies or post stem cell transplant where you have factors like graft versus host disease um, and they're on high dose steroids and um, ruxolitinib and basiliximab and IL-2 inhibitors like infliximab um, where macrophage and T cell function is impaired for a prolonged period of time. Um, so these patients take a longer time to recover from these um, community acquired infections, as we would say, and that would be different from the general population. And I think in those settings, it's very difficult to, uh, to treat those patients as if um, they were just infections from the community because they have those underlying risk factors, even though their cancer may be in remission. It's funny because I feel like I'm asking you these questions. Like, I don't know if you've ever learned a second language and then you think to yourself, like, how do I say this in English, you know, but, but in Spanish or, you know, like, it's like, it's a different framework and a different perspective. You can't just translate directly. Um, and I'm finding as I'm asking you these questions that, that that's sort of the response is that it really just depends on how you're even treating the patient. Um, Catherine, would you add anything to, to what Justine talked about in terms of when you find somebody who has this kind of history and say, you know, we're a year out from their allo or, or um, no, sorry, auto or um, solid transplant. And now they're coming in with signs of pneumonia. Are you, what, what is your therapeutic approach to them? So I think it's, there's not really a one size fits all approach. I, I think it's really, I think that's really the, the key for, for transplant patients is that it really does need to be individualized. Um, you need to sort of really dive into their history and, and, and get a sense of what, it, you know, what type of immunosuppression they received. Um, have they had GBHD? Have they had graft rejection if it's an SOT patient? Because those are things that will predict increased need for augmented immunosuppression and thus risk for additional infection. Um, you know, it's 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 tricky because there isn't you know I, I, like unlike HIV where you sort of have the CD4 count as your biomarker that helps you really predict certain types of infections. For SOT and stem cell transplant recipients, I, I don't think we have a single biomarker that really can tell us what their net state of immunosuppression is. It's really a combination of a variety of factors that I think that we think about that really help us understand how immunosuppressed they are and what their risks of infections are and what we think their current microbiology for that community acquired pneumonia or UTI or intra-abdominal infection is. It's, it's gonna be that history of um, you know, what, what, did they, what did they get? Um, what sort of antibiotic exposure have they had recently? Um, have they had frequent hospitalizations for complications related to their transplant? Um, what are they on currently, the duration of, of immunosuppression, um, and then, uh, uh, you know, for the hemolignancy patients, their duration of neutropenia as well. So there's, 
there's lots of different factors. I, I wish it were just one, but but I think it does need to be a somewhat individualized approach because um, you know somebody that's a year out from a transplant um, could be very different from another person who's a year out from a transplant who's not had issues with, um, you know, there could be somebody with issues with chronic graft-versus-host disease requiring, you know, uh, pulse dose, high dose steroids um, repeatedly um, uh, versus someone who has not. So I, I think all of those things um, have to be taken into consideration when considering your approach to, to therapy. Um, so it, it doesn't make it very easy for, for developing guidelines and sort of for the ER, um, a provider that's trying to make a decision at two in the morning about empiric therapy. And, and so I think in some ways, um, you know, and I'm, I'm guessing that the approach in many situations is people tend to treat broadly sort of upfront, but I think that the opportunity comes with de-escalation once you've had a chance to um, review the culture data, review their history, and really think about what the patient is at risk for when you ultimately tailor their antibiotics. That's great. You just hit another pivot for me where I wanted to ask about that. So then you, you have a patient, you're treating them for an infection, you get your culture data back and it's a, it's either like a respiratory culture that's growing nothing, or maybe it's a culture that is growing, you know, a couple, a few couple, like two plus strep. And yet you're still dealing with someone who's immunosuppressed. So how do you approach de-escalation in that kind of scenario. You have cultures, but you're not really sure if you can do culture-directed therapy. You don't know if you should trust it. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, and again, I think it's gonna be an individualized um, decision based on what's going on with the patient. How are they responding clinically? Um, are they um, getting better? Are they still in the ICU on multiple pressors? Um, so, so I think in some ways there are some similarities to perhaps a non-immunosuppressed patient where um, oftentimes it is in combination with the culture data, you use the other clinical data that you have going on to make a decision. So you use other laboratory data, you use um, the patient's clinical course um, to really make a decision about is it, is it appropriate to, to de-escalate. Um, you know, I think the subject of antibiotic de-escalation is, is a pretty, um, it's been a hot topic, I think, within um, at least the, the world of um, heme malignancy and, 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 and um, stem cell transplant, um, where there, there have been some more recent studies that suggest that de-escalation, um, earlier antibiotic de-escalation can be appropriate and safe. Um, there was a nice uh, uh, trial that was published about four years ago now, um, called the How Long uh, Trial. It was published um, from a Spanish group. Um, it's a multi-center randomized clinical trial um, with high-risk patients with neutropenic fever. These were mostly heme malignancy patients, some stem cell transplant patients. Um, and they had a, uh, an anticipated duration of neutropenia for greater than seven days. So these were high-risk patients. Um, they were febrile, they did not have a known source of infection. So these are always the trickiest ones because you don't know what's causing their fever. Um, and basically they randomized patients to either continuing therapy until count recovery, till their ANC was greater than 500 or to early antibiotic discontinuation um, when they were afebrile um, or, um, and, and that they had evidence of clinical recovery. Um, and so what they found was that those who were randomized to early antibiotic de-escalation uh, got a shorter course of antibiotics um, compared to those who were randomized to continuation until count recovery. 
And then when they looked at outcomes like recurrent fever, infections, and mortality, they did not see any significant differences in these secondary outcomes. And then notably, they did see a higher rate of serious adverse events among patients who had their antibiotics continued until count recovery. Um, and so I think that this trial has really um, led the way for many centers um, to start adopting this approach of um, early antibiotic discontinuation. I, I, I think it, you know, that the standard practice for many years has been basically continue the broad spectrum anti-pseudomonal until their counts recover, which for some patients can be weeks. Um, and so I, I think many centers, including our own, have um, incorporated this approach of earlier antibiotic de-escalation among those who have an unknown source of fever. And again, you're using a combination of um, you know, sort of the clinical, you know, how they're doing clinically, um, culture data. In these cases, it's, it's all negative, but, but using that to guide your, um, your approach to de-escalation. And, and I think in, in general, um, there's been, uh, you know, I think it's taken some time to get the hematologists and oncologists on board, but I think, um, I think people are, are uh, moving to, to sort of um, feel more comfortable with this type of approach. That's so interesting. And, um, and we will put a link to that paper in our show notes for those of you who are listening. Justine, what, uh, would, you, would you add anything else to that? Yeah, that is a, a, a great trial to use uh, for our stewardship purposes in this population. I think uh, one thing that in that paper too is that uh, those patients who stopped antibiotics earlier, over 50% of them were still still had an ANC of less than 500, um, and there were no adverse outcomes associated with that. So I think that that also that also helps the 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 provider and the clinician to to understand that this is a safe approach. But I think we need more studies like that, and 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 in and and push the limit in terms of. What, what high risk is, you know, perhaps, um, you know, including more allogeneic transplants or including relapsed refractory um, leukemic patients, which I understand is a very, very difficult task and population to study. But those types of studies are really what we need in that population before we can feel very comfortable in, in some of these situations. Um, but that is, a, that is a study that we use all the time in our, at our institution as well. So what do you think about this idea? Okay, so you have somebody, you start treating them broadly. They've, they're responding clinically. Your cultures are negative. And now you've come to a point and you're having a conversation with somebody and they say, you know, the patient responded to this broad spectrum therapy. I feel most comfortable continuing it. Where does that take you in your conversation and stewardship with those providers? So I think a... a relationships between the antimicrobial stewardship team and the providers uh, play a critical role in increasing the willingness to de-escalate or discontinue antibiotic therapy. And everyone has a different perspective on what is best for a lot of these complicated patients. And uh, keeping an open mind, I think, is really important uh, when performing stewardship in, a in any vulnerable population, uh, whether it be solid organ transplant or hematologic malignancy. Um, so some strategies when performing stewardship is, is to inquire the perspective of the clinician to see how comfortable they are feeling about um, de-escalating or discontinuing therapy and um, finding the right time to discuss de-escalating antibiotics. And, and in this population, perhaps 
checking in with them again in one to two days to see how comfortable they feel about de-escalating antibiotics. But I think it's still very impactful to increase the clinician's awareness when it comes to the possibility of de-escalation, which may be a little bit of a different approach than in non-immunocompromised populations. Um, so I think that's one strategy. And I think another strategy is um, in this population too, is to sometimes not focus so much on de-escalating antibiotics, but um, almost initiating antibiotics in, in patients who require prophylaxis based on their risk factors. Um, for example, HSV prophylaxis, VZV prophylaxis, or initiating Bactrim for patients who are on high dose steroids, um, or CMV prophylaxis for, for latermavir, uh, which can be missed on occasions as well. So I think ASP teams also play a huge role in initiating and determining appropriate therapy and duration of therapies based on these risk factors that I mentioned um, and the type of chemotherapy they are receiving that puts them at risk um, for these infections. Um, and those interventions tend to be more well-received by, um, by other providers and, and it helps build trust amongst other clinicians um, and puts the focus a little bit less on de-escalating and discontinuing you know, you know, after that initial conversation. And I think over time, once the, the, the relationship um, is has become more trusting, they're more willing to de-escalate and discontinue antibiotics and they're more aware of uh, an appropriate time. Um, but uh, the, this population is, is very tenuous and, and things change very quickly. So um, that's one approach to kind of combat some of those acute changes that can happen in, in this population. Thanks, Justine. Um, Catherine, would you add anything to that in terms of those strategies? No, I think I think I, I just want to echo Justine's comments that building a relationship with the transplant uh, teams, the providers that are involved in taking care of these patients is just so critically important. I think it's critically important for stewardship um, in general for any sort of interaction across um, all patient populations, but I think in particular for the immunocompromised host. Um, it is, um, these are patients where uh, so much has been invested in, um, in taking care of their um, chemotherapy plan, their transplant plan, and, and I think building those relationships is, is just so important to be able to, um, you know, make changes like de-escalation. And, you know, I think perhaps reframing, um, you know, de-escalation always feels like you're taking something away. So I think the idea of that we're adding something to the patient's care, that ultimately we all have the same goal. We want to do what's best for the patient, I think is really, um, really important and just really demonstrating that we're all part of the same team here. We're not trying to take away something from the patient, I think is, is really important. Um, I, I found that sometimes taking a stepwise approach to uh, de-escalation can be helpful. So rather than taking away everything all at once is doing it, you know, one agent at a time, seeing how they do over the next 24 hours and then maybe stopping the second agent. Um, and then I, I've also found recently having sort of discussions about um, the effect of antibiotics on the microbiome and some of the other um, sort of toxicities where the transplant um, you know, providers may, may, may be able to better relate to um, has been something that I, I think has helped with some of the discussions as well, sort of the, you know, I think the concept of antibiotic resistance, you know, obviously is one that we all hold near and dear to our hearts, but I, I think for the individual practicing oncologist, transplant physician, oftentimes 
um, it, it's sort of felt to be a bit more of a, um, you know, it's a, it's a public health issue. It may not necessarily apply to their patient, but when you're talking about the fact that um, disruption of the microbiome could actually have an effect on that patient's risk of subsequent graft versus host disease and transplant related outcomes and mortality. I think that is something that really, you know, speaks to their language. And so I think being able to sort of um, um, communicate with them in a language that they understand and appreciate, I think is also very helpful. And, and so I think so much of that work that's going on right now about the relationship between the microbiota diversity and the microbiomes is really important as it, I think will help inform how we better be better stewards and, and work with our um, co transplant colleagues um, on these issues. Yeah, there was a there was a nice paper by uh, Shono and colleagues and Weber and colleagues um, from the University of Rochester, and I believe Memorial Sloan Kettering does a lot of work with the microbiome, um, and they have highlighted some of the harmful effects of antibiotics, specifically um, in in one of those papers, early initiation of antibiotics with activity with antibiotics with activity against anaerobes. I think more specifically, they used an example of imipenem and, and psilostatin and piperacillin-tazobactam, um, which showed uh, the loss of microbial diversity and a higher risk of acute graft-versus-host disease um, in murine and in vivo models too. Um, so although antibiotic use in graft-versus-host disease is very common and, and more times than not, they'll most likely be on antimicrobial therapy, I think there is an underappreciated risk of using those antibiotics that may exacerbate or, worse, or worsen the uh, GVHD and affect the microbiome in ways that the, um, the providers can relate to a little bit more rather than uh, antimicrobial resistance. That's so fascinating and seeing all this information on microbiome come out on across our fields and across even outside of infectious diseases is sort of mind-blowing. Um, but it's so interesting to me that you have now put it into practice because I think from my standpoint or my vantage point where I've really only seen it discussed for the most part is C. diff and C. diff prevention. Um, but to see it being applied now here, thinking about graft versus host disease and even some of the responses to some of the cancer chemotherapeutics um, seem to be impacted by gut microbiome, um, which is so fascinating. But I, as far as at, at this point though, there's no official word or strategy on it. It's more like this seems to be a problem there seems to be a risk associated with antibiotics. So let's talk about risk versus benefit with treatment. Is that kind of the approach you're using with microbiome in day-to-day -day conversations? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's still um, a lot of work that needs to be done to better characterize, you know, which antibiotics, I think as Justine mentioned, I think there seems to be an effect of, um, you know, antibiotics with anaerobic activity um, on the microbiome uh, that may have a, a deleterious effect. Um, I think it's it's just it's it's an area that I think a lot of folks, including the transplant folks, have a lot of interest in. So I think just having these conversations that the antibiotics may have effects that are deleterious beyond antibiotic resistance, beyond um, you know the things that we're concerned about, it actually has a, a, you know negative potentially negative consequences on outcomes that involve um, patient care outcomes. Um, related to the treatment of their underlying disease. I, I think just starting to have those conversations, I think is important. And it's, it's helped us, I think in, in some situations, it's, it's helped with, with, with actually being able to discontinue some broader spectrum antibiotics. 
there's been, I think beyond the transplant literature, there's been um, some interesting data about uh, the microbiome and um, some of the immunotherapies like immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, so these drugs have really been, I think have revolutionized the treatment of a number of the, the solid tumors um, like melanomas and, and renal cell carcinomas um, where uh, uh, they, they essentially um, work by utilizing the immune system to um, exert its anti-tumor effects. So they, they essentially, I think the, the way I've heard this described by my oncology colleagues is that they take the breaks off the immune cells so they, and allow them to target the cancer cells through um, these PD-1 inhibition. And um, what these studies have shown, and there's been some mice model, mouse models, um, as well as um, some other uh, more pers uh, prospective studies in, in, in patients showing that um, antibiotic exposure is uh, linked to reduced survival um, uh, among those who are treated with PD-1 inhibition. And then I think in some of the mouse model studies, they've shown that um, FMT or fecal microbiota transplant of um, either germ-free or antibiotic treated mice improves response to PD-1 inhibition. So um, some really interesting data. There, there was a, a study that was published in um, JAMA Oncology about two years ago now that found that um, patients who got um, prior antibiotic therapy within 30 days of checkpoint inhibition had reduced survival and had more evidence of progressive disease compared to those who did not get prior antibiotics. And um, interestingly, when you actually look at the um, indications for antibiotic use in that study, one of the most common indications was for respiratory tract infections. Um, so we know that that prescribing, antibiotic prescribing for respiratory tract infections, I think has been a challenge in general for the, for the general patient population, but in particular for those who are getting immune checkpoint inhibition, I think that does represent a potential opportunity for stewardship um, uh, given some of this intriguing data about the link to, between antibiotic use and um, response to uh, checkpoint inhibitor therapy. That is so interesting. Okay, so fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, the, before I let both of you guys go today, um, I do want to um, engage you in one of our segments that's new on the podcast, which is called I Feel Nerdy. So I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's question, um, I'd like each of you to tell me your favorite infection. I guess I wouldn't call it favorite, but maybe the one you respect the most, acknowledging that infections aren't like ice cream flavors, right? We don't seek them out, but as ID clinicians, they are interesting. Do either of you want to start or I'm happy to go first? Okay, I'll go first. Um, so mine, mine I find interesting is pneumocystis pneumonia. Um, and that's because in the context I've seen it has basically been um, AIDS. And I have seen that this is an infection where patients present to the hospital with this AIDS-defining illness and they respond so quickly to the treatment. And also it's a moment where they become connected to care and end up with ideally getting their antiretroviral therapy and do pretty well overall in the cases I've seen. So that's my that's the infection I would choose. Um, Justine or Catherine, you wanna go next? I think Justine maybe. 
So there's so many. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I'll be, I, gosh, you know, I think right now I'm very fascinated by um, CMV. Um, one, because I think, uh, you know, reactivation can occur um, in, you know, we have patients that, that you can expect may reactivate due to CMV, but sometimes you see these one-off cases where, you know, what, what are your risk factors for CMV? And then you see these viral loads of upwards of 10,000 and, and, you know, you, you start thinking to yourself and going back in the history, trying to find something. Um, so I think that's very interesting. And, as, and the kinetics of the virus too, I think um, is uh, very interesting to watch the viral load go up after starting therapy um, and before it goes down. So I think that's, that's a very interesting part of CMV. And then I think another component that makes it interesting for one of the preventative uh, viral infections that, that we treat is that with uh, Latermavir, um, you know, a lot of uh, places for a, a lot of infections for HSV or VZV or um, fungal pneumonias, we're not routinely, you know, or constantly monitoring for these infections. But for CMV, we're monitoring, you know, once weekly, sometimes twice week weekly. So, you know, there's an outcome associated with this prophylaxis now, and people get very um, passionate about um Latermavir now in, in this new era with prophylaxis rather than a preemptive strategy. So I guess for right now, I, I would say that CMV is probably the, the infection that, that, you know, gets my juices flowing, I guess. <laughs> uh, I like that. Okay, Catherine? Yeah, there, there are so, so many uh, different possibilities here. I guess I would say prior to my sort of um, uh, shifting gears and, and focusing on immunocompromised host, uh, Staph aureus um, was an infection that I've spent um, many years uh, thinking about and uh, still, I think, find to be very challenging to manage. We obviously have um, many new newer therapeutics for management of some of our more, more resistant infections, but um, Interestingly, we don't see as many um, MRSA in our cancer and um, uh, stem cell transplant recipients compared to our general population. Actually, when you look at our antibiogram for the for our SCCA, the Seattle Cancer Care uh, patients, um, we have um, the the percentage of MRSA is is less than what you see compared to um, our patients over at um, our you know, at our general medical uh, populations at the University of Washington and uh, at uh, Harborview Medical Center. So we don't see as much resistance staff. Um, so I don't manage it as, as much as I, as I, as I used to uh, prior to coming over to, to Fred Hutch. Um, but, but I would say that, um, that probably the, the most challenging infection and um, one of the sort of one that, that we, that always, requires a lot of thought in, in trying to figure out how best to manage our, our patients with invasive fungal infections, in particular invasive mucor mycosis, where these patients present, um, sometimes their symptoms are subtle, and then you get their chest CT scan or their sinus CT, and you are just blown away by how much disease they have. And it, it really is something that I have learned to respect because these patients are immunosuppressed, they oftentimes don't have the typical signs and symptoms of infection that you might imagine. They may have a mild cough, if that, if at all. And then, you know, you look at their CT scan and they've got, you know, a large um, mass 
that that is has rapidly progressed from you know a, you know clear scan maybe you know a week or so prior. These, I, I think, what has been encouraging lately is is that we do have some you know newer antifungal agents um, to both prevent and treat these infections. I, you know, I think in the past these infections would be almost universal, be universally fatal. Um, oftentimes it does require a very coordinated effort with surgery, um, either with our thoracic surgeons if the infection involves their lungs or, or our ENT colleagues if it involves the sinuses. But really I think that multidisciplinary collaboration in, in really trying to manage these patients has, has been, you know, is really key and, and has been, you know, I think the key to, to sort of treating these patients I, so I think that this is definitely an area that I wish we had better therapeutics. There are some newer antifungals that are on, that are sort of being investigated now that I hope um, will provide better success for managing these patients. But um, mucor is definitely something that, that I continue to, to respect and, and look forward to better therapies for our patients in the future. Thanks, Catherine. I feel like you had to say staph aureus. Like, yeah, it's just, it's strange. We just haven't seen as much. Um, we, you know, we get it every once in a while, but it's not like, um, like I, yeah, used to see. Yeah. Better line care and, you know, management. Yeah. I suppose that's a good thing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you to both of you for your time today. I, I do really want to acknowledge the team sportiness. I'm going to make that a verb um, of infectious diseases in general. And I, you know, I have a lot of colleagues on speed dial and constantly bouncing ideas off of them when I see infections or drugs that I don't use that often. And so, both of you, uh, because you work in this environment, and you know, a lot of what you do is is niche for the immunocompromised patient populations and incredibly important and you see a variety of infections. So I'm sure that makes you top recipients of those SOS texts. Help me figure this out. What, how do I treat this? So on behalf of all of us, um, thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your responses in general. And thank you to our listeners for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases pharmacist podcast. I have been your host, Zara Kasamali Escobar, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Catherine Liu and Dr. Justine Ross. This episode was produced by Rachel Britt and me. It was edited by Jillian Hayes, Monica Mehta, and Joanne Huang. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Aaron McCreary and Julianne Gesto. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future. 